0: Welcome to The Main Experience. Welcome back to The Main Experience podcast. You are listening to episode 16. Thanks so much for joining me today. It's been a little while since our last episode. My apologies for that. It's been uh, a crazy year for everybody, and it's actually been a little over two years since I moved to Maine. So at the end of the episode, I'm going to give you a little short update on what I've been up to and my own personal Maine experience. But first, I'm really excited to share this episode with you. I have a conversation with Brian Kevin, the editor-in-chief of Down East Magazine. I've been wanting to have a writer on the show for a while, so it was fun to talk to him. He's a really engaging guy, and it was just a real pleasure to dive into his personal writing experience. Later, we have a track uh, from a band that was previously featured on the podcast. After a name change, the band Tumbledown is now Halicom, named after a cove in Cape Elizabeth, Maine, where the band was formed. Uh, we have a new track called Must Have Been off their new EP being released this week. And finally, I'm going to leave you with a soundscape recorded at Harris Turkey Farm in West Newfield, Maine. I was there uh, last month on a shoot for Life Media for their Thanksgiving episode, and I thought it was a suiting soundscape for the season. But first, here is my conversation with Brian Kevin. We recorded this back in the summer when we were first emerging from our quarantine cocoons, um, and I hope you enjoy. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Main Experience podcast. I'm here with Brian Kevin, a writer and editor-in-chief of Down East Magazine. And this is our, my first sort of Zoom interview, so thank you, Brian, for coming on the show and being my guinea pig as we enter this like new uh, Zoom world where everybody's talking to each other through computers. It's inevitable that now my podcast interviews will probably be doing some of this as well. So thanks for coming on my show, and um, uh, thanks for taking the time to sit down. With
1: me. i'm super glad to do it like i was joking with you earlier like
0: any excuse to have a human conversation right now is actually kind of wonderful <laughs> amen to that amen to that it's been crazy so i want to kind of get to um i want to kind of get to the magazine and down east and especially sort of the the current trials that you're facing in this new world that everybody's facing but before we get to that i kind of want to go back to the beginning and just kind of learn about you and how you, you know, found writing, discovered writing, passion, inspiration, all that stuff. So kind of tell me a little bit about how you decided to become a writer.
1: Yeah. Um, it's funny. i I feel like I've, i had the point where I've talked to this en- enough times that I've, I've almost got my little story like Pat and I try I don't. I don't want to, I don't want it to like metamorphosize into like, no, this is just the thing I say when I'm asked this question, but I, uh, I, I can remember, I grew up in Wisconsin. I went to college at like a state school in Wisconsin, and I was a philosophy undergrad. Um, and like going back when I was a kid, I enjoyed, uh, like I worked for the high school paper. I think I actually founded my middle school newspaper, but, um, I went to, uh, I got my undergraduate degree. I was a philosophy major. Um, and I enjoyed the, like the writing and rhetoric aspect of that, but it wasn't, like the idea of going into magazine journalism or something wasn't so much a career goal until I used to, um, I used to give Plasma, you know? Um, well, I didn't give it. I sold it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like you get your 50 bucks a week for selling Plasma. Uh, and, uh, and the place where I sold Plasma when I was in college and for years afterwards had like, this is in the mid, well, the late 90s, I guess. Late 90s and into the early 2000s had this awesome uh, magazine collection. Like you go to Plasma Center and they had Outside, which I'm still incredibly fond of, and National Geographic Adventure and New Yorker and probably they had Harper's and GQ. And I was fond of magazines already, but sitting in the plasma chairs um, and and like reading those every week became like part of my routine. And I can remember pretty clearly like reading a byline on somebody's story in the late nineties or early two thousands, like while plugged in with the needle and stuff. And, uh, and the byline was like, you know, so-and-so writes about travel music and the outdoors. And I can a very distinct memory of being like, well, that sounds, how do you do that? (laughs) That sounds like a pretty good deal. Um, So that kind of piqued my interest about it. And then after college, I, um, I kind of just started freelancing, to be honest. I like took a, 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 a a little class at the local literary center in minneapolis where i lived for a few years about um how to write a pitch basically how to write a magazine query it was really helpful um just that like one class alone you know which is probably like a seven-week course at the local literary center just kind of taught you the basics of like how to try and sell a story and this was still in the glory days of magazines to some degree you know Um, where there were a lot more paying markets And, uh, so I was like waiting tables and working in the AmeriCorps national service program and doing like various post-college kind of things. And I just started like pitching and selling, you know, features and and short stuff to mostly really small little magazines. And then, you know, gradually kind of snowballed. After a while, I had enough clips that I felt confident going out to try to get an internship. I interned at a magazine, very much like down East, but in Minneapolis. Um, and then, you know, it all kind of kept rolling from there.
0: But before that, did you sort of enjoy writing? You said about the starting the middle school newspaper. so I did. At a really early age, you kind of gravitated towards this idea of that voice in your head and putting it on page, yeah? I did.
1: I did, but I like, you know, you're a kid. I was into theater and I was into music and I was in drugs (laughs) and I was into like various other things all throughout like my, you know, teenage and and twenties. No, I um I really liked the magazine form, you know, and I, like I said, I loved writing like academic papers when I was a, a student. Um, but when I started really getting into it, just around that, you know, plasma time, like in my early twenties, late teens or something, I really just realized that I really enjoy magazines. I like feature writing and that, that, that style that sort of blends, um, you know, reportage and, and like storytelling, sometimes first person, sometimes not but then from there I really just started getting into the architecture of magazines. Like I really enjoy a well put together service package and I really enjoy a like, cool little front of book items and the way they piece together. And I felt that way, you know, just as a magazine reader, you know, for getting you know, on 20 years now. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but the other part of it, to be honest with you is, um, I think what I thought 20 years ago and what has proven to be largely true, although it's like, of course it's like, what do we say, grim realities of the work turn out to be a little bit different, but that um, magazine writing, in particular freelancing, which I did for eight years full-time, was a really great way to just kind of be like a perpetual student. Like, particularly if you're kind of a generalist, like I was, and I guess I am, and don't really have one particular thing you focus on. Like, it was a great excuse to just sort of constantly be talking to interesting people, constantly be asking good questions, have an excuse to read and research, And just constantly be learning. And, you know, the truth is that I often feel, not always, but often feel like the actual moment of writing, having to put words on a page. Like, if
0: I could s- skip that part and just do all the learning, I would, I would be totally fine with that. <laughs> yeah, because when you choose a subject or an article, you're really sort of, you have to become almost um, an expert in that before you go to, or not an expert, but you have to know yeah. a lot about a subject before you go to start, try to evaluate your own sort of angle on it, right? I mean, yeah. so you're constantly Expertise learning about things.
1: It's kind of a funny thing in that way. You know, you're talking to experts. And then you, you know, sort of, you stake out your own little knowledge realm, you learn what you need to know for the sake of the story, you actually probably learn more than you need to know for the sake of the story. And then the story, you know, materializes from somewhere within that sphere. Um, and if you're somebody who like has a beat, you know, like a lot of writers do, or, or even a handful of beats, you know, I, I consistently write about national security i consistently write about cocktails or, or whatever else then i think over time you probably do get like what we would call expertise i honestly cannot say that i feel that in any particular way there was a while there where i was writing an awful awful lot about public lands maybe i started to be like a pretty savvy public lands reporter um but even that's been a while and i look back right now at stories that i wrote four or five years ago and you know i'm looking at some piece that i did and it has to do with like uh uh a, a colony of birds like disappearing mysteriously on a Florida island a bunch of years ago. And I know <laughs> that when I wrote that story, I knew an awful lot about the nesting habits of colonial birds. And I don't know any of it anymore, you know, so it's very situational.
0: Right. Um, Your brain chooses what you sort of want to hold on to and, you know, okay, I'm mm-hmm. done with that information yeah. now. So, but I love that. I love that the dabbling nature of that is,
1: is like is a really cool thing for
0: somebody like me. I well, and I,
1: it might not suit everybody.
0: I love that. I love that you sort of took this love of magazines and then you saw an example where you had the idea of like, oh, here's someone doing this. Oh, mm-hmm. like maybe I can do that. So you got a little bit of education and then you started to put in that work and you said about being a freelancer. So, what were some of those challenges when you first started that idea of? Okay, I think I might want to try to write professionally. What were some of those challenges on those first pieces? And and how did you sort of crack that that egg of, okay, I think I am a legitimate writer now?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's funny because it gets into that. I bet you have this conversation with people a lot, but that whole imposter syndrome of like
0: yes, right,
1: whether and when you ever look at yourself and go like, oh, okay, I, I'm legitimately this thing, which I don't, you know, yeah, I don't, right. if anybody ever gets that level of comfort, I admire that because <laughs> right. I constantly feel like, and I don't beat myself up about this. I think it's actually kind of a skill like just to be able to fake it. But I, I constantly feel like, all right another year has gone by where I've fooled everyone into thinking I can do this. Trust me, I feel the Um, same way. (laughs) Freelancing is a slog, you know, as I think you probably know. And as a lot of people probably listening to this can relate to like freelancing is tough. When I was getting started on it, I did it on the side of other jobs. And I was like, you know, in my early twenties. So my needs were few. Um, and I, like I said, I waited tables, I was in the AmeriCorps National Service Program, and then I, I gradually started like getting level magazine jobs. Um, and I was, you know, pitching magazines. There was this fantastic book back then. It probably still exists. In fact, I'm sure it does, uh, at least in the online form, but it's called The Writer's Market. Um, have you ever seen this? Mm. It's uh, this outfit, you just put it out every year, and if it still exists in print, I'm sure you can go find it at a library. It was a tome, this thing was a doorstop. And it was just a list of, um, all these different paying magazine markets. And at that time, like a certain amount of online, you know, stuff, but again, this is like early two thousands and, um, certainly the paying ones, like you probably could get a pretty nice paycheck from Salon back then, imagine, um, stuff like that. And, uh, and I would just flip through it and, you know, I would have sort of, I would have ideas for stories I wanted to pitch. And then you'd flip through and try and find, uh, you know, a a, a market that might work or I'd flip through and look at just like the breadth of publications that were out there and that would engender or like inspire ideas. And that thing was just like a big wish book, but it would tell you what they paid. And you'd get a sense like as a very beginning freelancer with like not a lot of clips of, we'll just tell you like what they wanted from you in a pitch and what they expected, uh, how hard it was to break in as a first timer and stuff like that. And so I was pitching magazines where I knew I had a reasonable shot of getting paid I mean, what like 10 or 20 cents a word at that time, which now there's like some websites that are fairly prestigious that don't pay that much. Um and uh and writing stuff for like a tiny little bluegrass magazine I remember and like some sort of arts and crafts publication that I just found in there and little sort of eco and environmental magazines quite a bit. And so you know the challenge would have been if I had woken up one day and been like, now this is my job. It's all I'm gonna do. Like I would not have been able to put food on the table. Um, and so, you know, if you can call it a challenge, like it was juggling that thing that was important, that seemed like it had sort of career potential with whatever I was, you know, doing
0: for Daily Bread at the time.
1: But it, it, it didn't really bother me, to be it, honest. Like, it, I felt incredibly lucky to be able to write a story that anybody cared to read. It sounds um, like
0: you were just sort of nurturing a passion, really, at that point, you know, just something you yeah. were interested in and, and wanted to apply some, some effort towards.
1: I had ambitions to do it professionally, but I feel like I took a really realistic uh approach to it i mean and not just realistic but like i did not grow up in this scenario nobody in my family went to college you know and uh it was like a little midwestern you know like we were a middle class to lower class family in a little midwestern town and like the idea that going and writing as a vocation was like a path that was available to me nobody had ever made that sound like a reasonable thing so um so and what i think whereas there may maybe some kids who I mean, kids like teenagers and and then people in their early twenties who have maybe had that, uh, like the idea of a creative career presented in front of them as a totally reasonable thing to want, then get a few years into their young career and realize how fucking hard it is and Mm -hmm. like potentially might not work out for them. And it can be kind of dream crushing. I mean, I feel like I talk to younger people now who are having that experience you know, and who are upset about it. Maybe even to feel like they were lied to a little bit, Yeah, you know, um, that like, yeah, the idea that they could be a writer was presented to them as a totally reasonable thing. And then it turns out it's not. And they're like, what the hell? Yeah. Um, I suffered from no such illusions. So, (laughs) you know, um, it was all kind of a lark to me and I very, systematically i had you know five-year plans and stuff and i would be like all right i would like to write for this magazine someday i'm not there yet but if i want to pitch outside magazine at some point what would be helpful is if i had a base of clips that had to do with the outdoors and environmentalism so here's like three smaller you know uh environmental magazines where i've got a crack at selling some stories let's pitch them for a while And sort of worked my way up. That's great Um,
0: advice to sort of have a goal and then break down those small pieces that can help you reach that goal. And then it gives you some things to sort of work towards, achievable, smaller things that can help accumulate towards a bigger thing. Um, And that might have been easier then
1: as a as a as a somebody who wanted to write for magazines in particular, because there simply were more. There was a more tiered ecosystem of paying publications and it's, it's all been hollowed out in, in some sense now. Now you can write, you know, great work or mediocre work um, on the web and have a substantial audience and not be making any kind of money yeah. and not really have a clear path as to how you're going to leverage those pieces to money. I don't envy somebody who's got to try and figure out that same strategy sure. <laughs> that I was figuring out, you know, at, at 21 or whatever. Wow.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so as a person who seems, I, you know, I find it daunting. I've, I've, when I write, whenever I try to sort of capture my thoughts in, in word form and put it down, I enjoy the process, but I don't think of myself as a writer by any stretch of the imagination. And these long articles in these books, and it's like, it just seems as a person who's not a writer, it seems like an overwhelming process to sit down and put words on a page and sort of cl- complete a project. So for you as a creative person, what, what sort of helps you when you see the blank page, what, what are you, what do you, how do you get there? You know, how do you get to the go from blank to a complete product? What sort of tools are you using to sort of get past that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think,
1: um, I, know that this is the way I think of writing and just from running with a lot of people who've been doing this as long or a lot longer than than I have and like being lucky enough to have had a lot of conversations with writers who are better than me and that I admire I think this is a, probably a fair thing to say but I think good writers really wrap their heads around the fact that the writing process is not that moment where you're putting words down on the blank page that that is like one step in a multi-step process that is the writing process and i got you finger quotes right now um you know and that makes that blank page step for me a lot less daunting i kind of nodded to it before but like that's the part that i like the least you know i really enjoy concepting and coming up with ideas and shaping them and like maybe tossing them around with somebody else now that i'm an editor and have the opportunity to do that i really really enjoy the research and the interview and the learning process um i'm a i'm a I'm an outliner. That's like more of a nerdy craft thing. Like people have different approaches to that. I outline anything I write in great detail before I even put pen to the page and the outline changes. I don't always follow and stuff, but I have a hard time getting started until I've got like a map of like where I want to go and how I'm going to get there, you know, for bigger pieces. Yeah. Um, And then skip the next part for a second. I really enjoy revision. Um, You know, I like, I really enjoy taking a thing that's finished and, tinkering with it um, and and fixing it up and replacing things and moving stuff around. I think that's why I've turned out to enjoy being an editor so much. And then, you know, I enjoy having written (laughs) and looking back on a finished thing Um, and uh, and doing all the stuff that sometimes goes along with it, talking about it, sometimes promoting it. You know, if it's a book project, there's all these steps that come after. That middle part that is writing, like that is the hardest part, but it helps to remember it's just one part. I mean, it's really drafting, you know. Um, And so I think that you know, thinking of that drafting as just being one cog in the larger wheel is psychologically helpful to just take on the pursuit. And then, you know, <laughs> what are the other tools you use to like get past the difficulty of that? Oh, you organize your pencils. <laughs> you know, you look at Twitter again. I mean, <laughs> all that terrible stuff that we all do that's yeah. just like finding a reason to not sit down and start and start pounding out words. But deadlines sure help. Yeah. Uh, if you know you are a full-time freelancer, like needing to get paid sure helps. Um, having a great editor if you have one who you can talk to when you're stuck and uh, or for that matter just peers you know like that you can bitch about things with or talk over problems with that's really that's really helpful um, I think I have a bad habit of not like turning to my writery peers and like you know, sometimes you just don't want to talk shop when you're not sitting there doing it um, so I don't maybe turn and like ask for people's take or like relying on readers as much as I probably should. and some other really good writers really do. Um, But that's all the, yeah, the psychology of it, I think, a little bit. And then, you know, there's the nerdy stuff, like uh, change venues every so often. Like, get a fresh perspective. Mm. You know, like, go sit somewhere else. I I will, like, spend one day, I mean, now we're all home, but back in the day, (laughs) like, work in this coffee shop for a little while. Pick up and move to a different one. Go fucking sit outside. Like, That kind of
0: stuff. I love that. I love hearing that the the chunks of the process because that makes a lot of sense. How, if you spend a little time in each one of those areas, they all sort of benefit from each other, right? You know, it's and uh,
1: I would imagine if you're writing a song or you're making a sculpture, there's like all similar, all that sort of thing. Um, that being said, I don't tend to think of writing it on like in like the same tier or a tier is not the right word, but in the same sort of basket as the as those pursuits like sculpture, you know music, whatever else that are really art forms this is not like a firm black line, but like I really tend to think of writing as a trade mm.
2: uh
1: more than an art form and like um this probably will earn me uh, the ire of some people but um, I think of it having like a lot more in common with plumbing <laughs> than it does with
0: painting a picture sure. um, you f- well fiction probably is a little more of a art maybe form, you know, maybe i've never sat down trying to write fiction ever, Interesting. so interesting it, um, and sort of why i guess is there is it just something that doesn't appeal to you or i mean there's so much interesting shit happening yeah.
1: like in real life why would i need to make anything up i love no it. i mean <laughs> i do feel that way a little bit but um in large part because my interest in writing has always been a professional one, or I just haven't really made the yeah. distinction between professional and non-professional. And what I really enjoy is the magazine form. I think it'd be kind of fun. I'm always sort of tempted to sit down and like think about writing a novel, but um, I I wouldn't honestly know where to begin. Yeah, um, written a few bad poems here and there. I was an MFA, so I, at one point I went and got a, a creative writing degree um, in Montana, uh, which, to be honest, was like as 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 uh, much of an excuse to live in Montana for a little while as it was to get the degree. And I have my, I have my opinions about the worth and value of like a, a master of fine arts and creative writing, which is a very popular degree to get these days. Um, but uh, so, you know, like I kind of ran with people who had a little bit more arty ideas about it than I did. And I get it. It's yeah.
0: just not, doesn't tend to be the way that I approach it. It's interesting because I think on a lot of creative fields, you'd hear people sort of Talk about both sides of that coin. Like, at what point is, are you is the education helping the pursuit of the art form, where you could just start pursuing the art form and don't worry about the education, and you're probably going to learn what you need along the way as you fall down. So that that's interesting. Um, I want to talk about. I'm really I'm really anxious to talk to you about this. Your Hunter S. Thompson hmm. book. Uh, so where did that idea come from? Tell me a little bit about that process. You know, from the initial idea to the publishing and just kind of tell yeah. me all about that because, you know, obviously I love Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. It's a great movie. I can't say I've, movie, I've read book. as much. I, you know, shamefully, I can say I haven't read the book. I <laughs> just oh, um, love it. But uh, you can you can read it in a sitting it is a nice thing about it. I like, guess not particularly long and it's a page turner in, yeah, so, in a way. So tell me um, all about Hunter S. Thompson and and this this path you went down.
1: Okay, um, yeah, because that's the only book I've written. I have some travel guide books and, and contributed to some other things, but like that's my only real, you know, I, I can't really speak to like the book writing mm. process in general because I've only done it that one time. I'd like to do it again <laughs> at some point, but um, I yeah enjoy uh, reading Thompson as well. And so when I was in my twenties and maybe teens, I probably read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, um, Hell's Angels, which is this first book, which is really good and stands up. He like embedded with the Hells Angels in the mid sixties. Boy, wow. Talk about forgetting the things we've learned. I used to know that date cold and I can't, I can't tell you off the top of my head anymore. 66 maybe. Um, he, you know, wrote this sort of participatory, uh, you know, journalistic deep dive, hang out with the, with the Hells Angels at a time when they were still a pretty unknown quantity. And when that form of sort of ride along journalism was, a, really sexy, and B, just not, was a little bit more provocative, I guess. Wasn't as much of a known quantity. And uh, and then his third book, uh, he had a collection that was in there too, but his third book called uh, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail in 72, which is just like political reporting kind of collected from the pages of Rolling Stone about the Nixon-McGovern collection, which just, side note, for my money, is like the most fascinating presidential election in the last few decades. Um, so I really, I admired the guy. And I had read um, a collection of his called The Great Shark Hunt that um, that uh, collected like four or five of these short pieces of kind of straight hard news journalism that he had done in the early 60s as a foreign correspondent in South America. And they pop up in this book, which The Great Shark Hunt collects a bunch of his early journalism from kind of pre-fear and loathing uh, era. And it's great. Uh, I think it's still in print. I'm almost sure it is. It's out there in any case. But that was it. Like there were these four or five little tantalizing pieces of him reporting on like Cold War, uh, like sociopolitics in South America in 62 and 63. And like, there's, it just doesn't tend to be a part of the Hunter Thompson mythology. Mythology is definitely the word for it. Yeah. Right. (laughs) With him. Um, And I think it's because the, like the gonzo character he became later in like the figurative sense of him sort of like, acting out this character. And then in like the very literal sense of him being like the subject of multiple movies and like a Doonesbury, you know, character yeah. I mean, kind of really overshadowed this early part of his life. So okay. I was sort of fascinated by that and I wanted to know more. Um I have a little bit of like just a uh I'm I'm interested in the sort of like containment era politics, like the whole sort of Kennedy to Nixon stretch. I just I feel like it, you know set this country on a completely different trajectory that we're still feeling the effects of. And so I've always kind of had like a real dilettante interest in that period of American history. Um, and I enjoyed travel writing. And and so honestly, uh, from like a, just a very mercenary point of view, I was like, well, I bet there's a book there. Like somebody could, you know, go to the places that he went. And this is eventually what I did. Um, You know go to the places that he went and um, and sort of revisit some of the topics that he was talking about all of which um, you know, it it has a lot to do with sort of uh, U.S. foreign policy in Latin America in that time and trying to stave off communism and there's so much stuff that we were pulling As as a as a nation, you know uh, In our early sort of nation building forays at that time that like is still haunting us is still haunting Latin America It seemed like there was something there so I pitched it as a Fulbright project while I was in grad school. It didn't get picked up for that, but in the process of like getting a Fulbright application together, I really kind of streamlined the idea a little bit. Um, I got a little bit of university money, like a really little bit, like $800, I think, <laughs> um, to like buy some plane tickets after I finished uh, grad school. Um, I was a little bit like i was gonna say footloose which the name of the book is the footloose american but i kind of was for a minute there i had like just gotten divorced i was just out of grad school i didn't really have anything particular tying me down um and uh, so i picked it up and i went to columbia in geez i'm gonna lose the thread here but it must have been 2009 or something and um hooked up with a photographer and sold a couple of magazine stories to help pay for the trip took my 800 bucks from the university of montana and sort of um Followed the Columbia portion of his route, um, which is a really interesting, he traveled through a part of the country that like, even now as Columbia is becoming safer and safer, and it was a little different in 2009 still, um, you know, gringo tourists like don't go to. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And then I used the material from that trip uh, and a magazine article that came out of it for a now defunct outdoor magazine called WEND um, to put together a book proposal. I shopped that around for like a couple of years. I feel like I made a couple other trips to South America in between again, like getting magazine, like little magazine jobs just to kind of like pay for the tickets and my, my <laughs> antibiotics. And, um, and, uh, and then, you know, sold the book for not very much money, but, um, to a nice, to a good publisher in, uh, probably about 2012 or something. And then with the book proposal, or rather the book contract in hand, I went back to, south america for either the third or the fourth time and did like a four months like wow. followed his whole route
0: wow yeah. so that's interesting so, that's so that's sort of a long process and sort of started with, super long. started with some small yeah. parts to sort of build on until you had that that chance to go do the four-month excursion what was that like being down there for that long and sort of really embedding yourself in it
1: yeah yeah and i should say right so the from from the like first putting pen to paper on a like half-baked Fulbright proposal un- until selling the book. Um, that was three or four years. Wow, I think it was three, three years. And then it had to get written in a hurry. The book contract, um, we were going to try and get it out in 2013, which would have been like the 50th anniversary of Thompson's trip. It didn't work out for a bunch of stupid reasons, but uh, it wasn't out until 2014. Um, but the trip was great. Um, you know, By that time, I was living in Maine. Uh, the whole process started when I was living in Montana. Um, I moved to Maine in 2010, the end of 2010 and, uh, and, um, had a partner who's now my wife, <laughs> the mother of my two children. But at the time we were just living together in an apartment in Bath and she had you know, already knew she had dealt with my freelance sort of comings and goings on, on assignments up until that point. And the book had been like this thing that I've been working on in the back of my mind, um, since we met. Because like relationships are an important factor in any of these you know, like creative pursuits that we're talking yeah, about. For sure. Because I had to look at her and be like, well, "I'm going to South America for four to five months. <laughs> You're in charge of the cats, you know, and like yeah. are going to be living by yourself." Your name. She was great about it. That's awesome. Um, and the, yeah, yeah. I mean, ha- man, you know, like having a partner who is just supportive, yeah. and you can be supportive back to Obviously, it's huge. Um, huge. I mean, for life yeah, <laughs> for right. any for a career. lot of things <laughs> yeah. particularly for like these weird you know creative careers that don't necessarily follow like an easy like we were saying earlier sort of nine to five yeah but they don't have the same level of predictability let's say um so, yeah, I mean, man, I could talk about that trip all day long. I don't know what you want to know well, about it. I learned it, it an awful, awful lot.
0: It, was there anything uh, that you were sort of surprised about in that process that you were like, whoa, I did not expect to see this, did not expect to experience this, did not expect to feel this way? Just anything that's sort of like, or maybe your favorite part or just something that's yeah. like, you know, something that really stood out to you. There's so much like that, yeah. to be honest. I mean, like I, I didn't grow up a
1: very well-traveled kid. Like I said, this sort of like, you know, um, working class family. I didn't travel a ton. I started to get into it a lot more as a, as an older teenager and a 20 something. And I got into hitchhiking and taking the Greyhound and a little bit of international travel, but not a ton. Um, but, uh, so, you know, like I'm still at 40, like I, I will never be one of these world weary, like, oh, I've seen it all. <laughs> People like everything kind of blows my mind. Um, and, and my mind was blown off. And what well, I think the most interesting thing about that trip though, And what, um, ends up being kind of the, the, I mean, this gives away some of the revelation or the realizations in the book was, um, the extent to which like over the course of the 50 years that had passed since Thompson's travel, um, so many of our assumptions about like what what America was and what the developing world was had kind of gotten like flipped on their head. And that's what he was reporting on. And he was very like prescient in his understanding of this. Like this was at a time when, um, This was at a time when, like, the the, uh, thinking of some of the best foreign policy minds was that, like, if you can get into these, like, underdeveloped, I'm making finger quotes again, uh, nations at the right time, and you catalyze them with cash and, like, a certain amount of resources, um, you can sort of propel them forward, because there's a very linear way of thinking, like, um, out of that, you know, pre-industrial moment, um, and, and, like, you know just move them ahead in this linear timeline like they'll become more or less like us um walt Rostow was this like famous economist that kind of had advanced this theory and it was like behind everything that the kennedy administration did like we're gonna have, help these guys avoid communism by sort of like rocketing them towards uh american-style capitalist development and uh, like that was very much the reigning thinking in um in the early 60s and thompson saw through it and was calling bullshit on it in his reporting Um, But there was this idea that, like, once you got to this level of development that America had attained, you no longer had to worry about, or to the same degree, certainly, about, like, uh, you know, populist uprisings or dramatic income inequality or, like, the looming threat of authoritarianism or these things that sort of plagued the developing world. But we very much thought ourselves as as having, like, moved past. Um, And, you know... What as it turns out as like I think we're all coming to the realization of more and more like all these things are these wolves that are always fucking at the door, um, and in a lot of ways the U.S. became a lot more like Latin America uh, was in 1962 over the course of the last 50 years rather than the other way around. That's like a very highfalutin answer to that question, but that's what I spent like months and months and months thinking about. That's because that's what Thompson had spent months and months thinking
0: about. Yeah. I mean, I was smiling (laughs) as you were saying, I was smiling as you were saying that because, like, I appreciate those sorts of things too. I enjoy looking back on history, looking at what we did, the motives behind it, the result of it. And just hearing you talk about what was going on in the fifties in this country, it's like, we now have the evidence of what the results of that was, you know, and there's, you you can, you can see direct correlations to a lot of things, a lot of problems that we have today, you know.
1: And it's very cool that Hunter Thompson, as a 20-something-year-old, was onto this stuff. And, yeah. you know, like, I happen to think his later writing kind of loses it a little bit. I mean, he gets a, he gets gonzo enough that he remains this really interesting person. But, like, anybody who tells you that his, like, lifestyle and drug use didn't take their toll, like, hasn't read much of what he wrote after about 1976, which, like, wasn't always that great. Gotcha. But he was a sharp reporter as a young man. And, um, and a really good foreign correspondent, like traveling on a shoestring, um, like racked by dysentery. And, you know, I mean, talk about the challenges of being a freelancer. Like he was living that, um, in this very real way in the early sixties as like this clueless gringo journalist who nonetheless, like, um, really had an impressive take and it, it launched his career. I mean, he came back to the United States after that. And the journalistic establishment like knew his name based on these stories from a now defunct newspaper called the National Observer. Um, So the ironic thing about that book is I think there's a certain amount of people who buy it because they're like, "Ooh, Hunter Thompson, Fear and Loathing. And then it sounds a lot like what I've been talking (laughs) about for the last five minutes. And they're like, oh, this is really nerdy. Um, but you know, it also has a lot to do with like the nature of travel and travel as a allegedly transformative experience and stuff too.
0: I'm still really proud of that. Book. No, that's I mean, that's really fantastic that's really fascinating just sort of hearing just diving into what he was spending so much time in so long ago, you know, and revisiting that. That's it's a brilliant idea for a book. And that's that's so cool that you were sort of able to see that project through from beginning to end. That's really Yeah. Awesome thanks.
1: Book. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And you know, like it didn't burn up the shelves by any means um i don't think neither i or the publisher had ever really anticipated that but like at this point now it's been out six years which is crazy and uh like i'll still you know get an email at least every couple of months from somebody who like it's a lot of people who like picked it up on a shelf in a hostel in latin america um and they'll say nice things about how it changed their thinking about something or just how much they enjoyed it and like yeah, man, if I never write another book, but I get like a percentage of those emails for the rest of my life from people just being like, wow, I read this and I really took something away from it. I mean, it's kind of a che- cheesy
0: thing to say, but it's pretty great. No, man, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, all, I'm sure that's all you can ask for. You know, that's really cool. You um, can ask for money. But. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, wait, wait till this podcast airs. Then you're going to see a huge increase. in, in, in sales. <laughs> um, all right. So you talked a little bit about um, Maine. And my questions are kind of moving that way. So how did you end up at down East and sort of talk to me a little bit about, about that process?
1: My wife grew up in Maine. Um, She grew up in Cape Elizabeth and we met in Montana and she always kind of had designs on coming back here, I think. And uh, after we had been, you know, courting or whatever for a couple of years, she, she kind of raised the prospect of coming here um, and Uh, we lived very briefly in between in Eastern Oregon. I really enjoyed Western Montana. I still try and keep a little bit of a relationship with Montana. I won't be going there this year, unfortunately, which is kind of a drag. Um, but, uh, but I had never spent any time out East at all. I mean, I come to New York for work stuff to schmooze editors like a couple times a year and like make that little trip. But, um, I did not know anything about New England. Um, I still don't, I know a lot about Maine now. The rest of New England, honestly, is still a little bit of a mystery to me. Um, so we moved out here in 2010 and, um, thought we'd at least give it a shot. I wasn't sure if I was going to like it or not. And, uh, yeah, that was 10 years ago now. And, um, when we got here, I, well, I was freelancing then. Um, I kind of, when I went to grad school, I started freelancing full-time a, a little bit by necessity. I didn't have a fellowship. I didn't have any funding as a grad student. And so it was a good opportunity to be like, well, okay, let's just do this as a, you know, um, as a full-time thing and, you know, balanced a lot of like little sort of sometimes longer term projects that help, you know, float the, the more ephemeral like magazine project. But uh, so there was no reason not to come. And when I got here, it was like, okay, there's not a super robust, like magazine publishing empire in Maine down East was pretty damn conspicuous from the get-go. And we absolutely, like in that first week or two picked it up off the newsstand at the IGA in Cape Elizabeth. And I can clearly remember elsa being like, hey, maybe you'll get a job here at some point. Sure as shit. It took <laughs> I think like four or five years. Um but I started pitching down east. Um I think I actually pitched them the first story I pitched them, I pitched them from South America on that trip. Oh, cool. There was a Mainer who I met in Paraguay, this really amazing guy. He appears in the chapter of the book. Um I won't go into Detail on him, but he, I pitched a story. I wrote back to Jeannie um, Wright, who's the senior editor right now, and I pitched her a story about this Mainer working in Paraguay. And they didn't buy it because at the time they really didn't write stories about Mainers outside of Maine. We still don't a ton, but we kind of re- relaxed our rules about stuff like that. And uh, and then we just were in good dialogue thereafter. And so I started getting freelance assignments from Down Easton. My previous boss, the last editor, um, talked me into a desk job in about 2014. Gotcha.
0: And then how did that, um, how did that, or how does one become an editor in chief then from that sort of process? What does that look like? I think I did it more rapidly
1: than most people, which was just a function of, I mean, I don't know what circumstance. Um, so I was hired as a, well, you know, it's tricky. I, my old boss, Kathleen Fleury, who was the former editor down East, um, and, and an amazing person. She was the editor in chief for five years. She was there for 12 maybe something. She was at the magazine for a long time and just a known quantity around me. Um, she came to my house in damasca when she trying when, when I'd been contributing for a while I was a contributing editor and she wanted to hire a managing editor and an ME typically is somebody who like makes the trains run on time. They like move paper around they, you know, shepherd the proof process, they oversee things. It's their job to just like get the magazine made. And I was kind of, I had done that for a literary magazine in grad school, but I was like, I oh, don't know, Kathleen, like, I really enjoy writing. I like writing features. I like writing little stuff. I don't think I'm really interested in like the mechanical process necessarily. So, you know, thanks, but no thanks. And then she came back a couple months later, I remember it was like, okay, I rejiggered some things. What if I, you, we could get you into it, you know, a job and you would be able to write you know, five or six features a year? Um, and I said, okay, yeah, I'll totally do that. And like within a year of me taking the job, like, <laughs> I had totally transitioned to, to exactly the job that she wanted me to do in the first place. Um, <laughs> it was very sneaky. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, like, I started off at Down East mostly writing and then really just sort of gradually over the course of a couple of few years in part because we're a small staff in part because Kathleen was tr- transitioning into more of a publisher role where she was um overseeing a lot more of like our brand extensions and other sort of down east projects that were not the print magazine or the website they were events and like we she helped launch a retail division and she helped launch a trip division and um she like rewrote our company culture book and did a lot of amazing things, but that weren't really like editor in chiefy things. They're more publisher things. I just kind of slid into that, um, into that role. We just kind of, you know, like I said, we're not a big staff. And so we were sort of like, all right, I'm going to take on those responsibilities. And it turns out I really like it. <laughs> like <laughs> I really like it. Um, so when Kathleen moved on to another position, um, uh, at the end of 2018, well, yeah, so by about 2016, I guess, like I was pretty much functionally running the day-to-day operations of the, of the magazine itself. And then when she moved on to another job a couple of years ago,
0: it was just kind of natural that I would take her, her title. That's, that's stuff that you were talking about her ex- extending the brand. Is that mm-hmm. something that magazines have had to do more and more recently, sort of becoming more, you know than a, more than a magazine in some ways?
1: Yeah. 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 And the good ones, I think, I think the good ones did it earlier, not even necessarily out of financial necessity, but because they understood that their brand was more than the printed material on a page, Mm -hmm. you know, now like it's just become an obvious financial necessity. I mean, you know, like if, if a publication could have subsisted entirely on its ad revenue or overwhelmingly on its ad revenue, as you know, a lot of like bigger national publications, like their circulation revenue is nothing, you know um, you buy the magazine for $10 a year or whatever. Uh, and the costs of just national distribution are such that it just gobbles that up. And so it's really all about the ad revenue, you know, now, like it's just a much more complex piece of pie. Yeah, ad revenue is still a huge slice, if not the biggest slice for most publications. And there's so much variance from talking about like a regional like us to a city mag to a national, you distributed back to like an association magazine or something. Um, but within that pie then, I mean, everybody's just had to look for more pie. Yeah. <laughs> you know, The ad revenue doesn't carry it. So maybe you get money out of your circulation like we do, our circulation revenue. And our ad revenues are pretty balanced, which is in part because um, we have a fairly large circulation for a regional magazine. Like, we're not a magazine you pick up for free at the coffee shop. Like, people pay money to get it, which is awesome and flattering. And, uh, and, uh, And in part because it's Maine. So, you know, even though it feels like sometimes the magazine's full of ads, like, we're not getting the dollar amounts for them that a similar magazine in any number of places, you know, name another state chances are they out, you know, rank us in terms of like page, page rates. Um, and then, yeah, you look at events and you look at trips and you look at retail and, um, we have a membership society now, like the Downey's club that you can join where you get all these different perks and things. And, um, yeah. It just keeps going like that. It's, it's But it's
0: exciting, honestly. It, yeah. It makes sense. I mean, everybody's having to do that. Podcasts. Not even, yeah. Not even, not even magazines, right? Like every business is trying to figure out how to diversify in this sort of yeah. media driven and experience driven and brand driven world, you know? Um, and even now as editor in chief, I try not
1: to get too, I mean, I'm in all those meetings and I have a role to play. I try not to get too bogged down in like, I don't want to run our trips division. I'm right. not qualified to run our trips division. <laughs> like you don't want me trying to run our trips division. I show up at some of the trips and shake hands and stuff. And it's kind of fun, um, but I do. I do like all the cool storytelling possibilities that come out of that. I mean, okay, the web is obvious. I mean, that goes back you know 20 years now. Like so much cool stuff you can do there. Yeah, increasingly you see magazine media which is the phrase I tend to use because we're not really talking about a print magazine anymore. We're talking about this whole kind of little empire. Mm -hmm. You see magazine media getting into podcasts and that just has some amazing storytelling possibilities. Um, E-newsletters, like that doesn't sound like a particularly new thing, but like the the increasing dominance of like email as being a way to connect to people as compared to social. And when I say connect to people, I don't necessarily mean drive traffic to their website. We have this new, uh, we have a bunch of newsletters Um, but we have a newish one that like the goal is not to get you to click something and come somewhere else. Like it's its own little micro publication. And that has, there's some really fun stuff you can do there um and it's just you know it's just a different sort of sliver of down east and then to think about how all those audiences like relate to one another is fascinating yeah
0: because they're really there's overlap but they're really their own audiences in, the, in a way yeah. i don't know i like this stuff. yeah because everybody everybody consumes the different types of content in their own way you know and uh-huh. some types of content are for some types of people and And vice versa, you know, so that's cool. And then the weird challenge is not getting too fractured as you try and speak to all those
1: different but related audiences, you know, like what we do on Facebook and what we do in print and what we do on the not yet existing, but hopefully soon existing podcast or in Pucker Brush, this newsletter I was mentioning, like they've all got to stem from a core that's solid and that means something and that you can articulate. But you're still at the same time speaking to different people. We, we have a little bit of a leg up in that. I think, stop me if this is boring, no. but institutionally, like we've always had this challenge where half of our readers live here and half of them don't. And that's like a remarkable challenge in itself because they're all united in the fact that they love Maine. But like, how you write something that appeals to those two very different groups is a fun challenge. Very um, interesting. So I think we have a knack for like navigating that like
0: fractured, but core (laughs) sort of, you know, uh, scenario. So what, what does the, um, kind of how you broke down that, that creative process of when you're approaching a piece that you're writing, what does the bullet points of the creative process of a magazine, how do you go from, okay, guys, we have a magazine due on this day, you Mm -hmm. know, what does that look like? If you can summarize that for someone who knows nothing about. You know how a yeah. magazine puts gets put together. That's an interesting question.
1: I mean, it's like you. It's like you're always functioning on two levels, right? You're always functioning like with your with your long term brain. Um, what do they say on and the Twitter memes? Like your galaxy brain and your universe brain and your whatever. Um, you're always sort of like one part of your brain is looking at the huge long term picture. You know where I like I can tell you we're actually in kind of a weird spot right now where we need to circle the wagons and do a little like long-term planning and story pitching. But like, generally speaking, I can tell you what's very likely going to be in the feature. Well, of the magazine, you know, eight or nine months out and spottily even farther, you know, because sometimes we're shooting stuff a year in advance for seasonality and all that. Um, and I have a sense in my head and my staff does too. Uh, it's not like you, it's not just me, uh, of, uh, of, like, how the issues in the year all kind of fit together, you know, and what we're doing in the August issue is not going to be too redundant with what's happening, you know, in the June issue and whatever else. And if you have special themes and stuff. Um, and what have we given people a lot of recently? Uh, and what have we sort of not done too much? We're always trying to balance geography in Maine, obviously, is a huge thing for us. We're a statewide magazine, it's on us to pay attention to all corners of the state and we can talk about this, but like one thing that's great about Maine is that those corners are pretty distinct in a lot of ways. Yeah. Right. Uh, And then, you know, and then on a whole nother level, like you're, you're just triaging (laughs) like the day-to-day deadlines and concerns and whatever else. So like I say, we are a small staff for a magazine of our circulation. I mean, it's crazy and we're (laughs) getting smaller every day. It feels like, but, um, we, uh, you know, we are in really good communication with each other and we operate as like a, as like a, you know, elite core and a family at the same time at our best. Um, You know, I'm assigning stuff constantly. I have really good relationship with my contributors. I think having uh, a core group of regular contributors who you can count on, who understand the magazine's brand, but also have their own thing going on, who you can, you know, communicate openly with, makes a job like this an awful lot easier and from a reader standpoint you know um i think i read this quote somewhere cy newhouse is like this magazine magnate. um died a little while ago but he i think this was his quote but he said like a great you know a great magazine is is all about like striking the balance between consistency and surprise um and i really think that that's true you can unpack that in a lot of different ways, but when you've got a core group of contributors who bring that consistency, I think readers appreciate that. And then you're just constantly looking for the, like the surprise element, like what's the thing that we can do that we've never done before? What's the thing that we can do that takes something standard that we would cover, you know, to death, like lighthouses, you know, (laughs) for us and do it in some new, weird, unexpected way that like makes it fun and more insightful. So like last year, we like went to and ranked <laughs> every lighthouse in the state. Like, you, you know, here's the, the Maine's shittiest lighthouse, <laughs> and Maine's greatest lighthouse. And that was a ton of fun. Yeah. And like if you're a regular reader of the magazine, you're like, what, are, what is this weird sort of gimmicky thing? But what it ends up being an opportunity to do is just really get at another sort of level of um, trivia and insight about like the forces that shape the state and lighthouses just become up. Yeah. The means by which you do that.
0: So it sounds like you and your team are definitely like all on the same page and all thinking about long term and short term goals constantly, right? You kind of always have to be developing what's going to be happening later while also dealing with what you got to do right now.
1: Yeah. And be able to hear a pitch um, or hear an idea get tossed around and be like, oh, we did this thing, mm-hmm. you know, even if it's a couple of years back, that's just a little bit too similar because, um, you know, what, uh, if people who have been reading the magazine for a long time, and there are a lot of them, um, like their memories are pretty long, Mm. you know? Um, so yeah, you don't want to be too
0: repetitive. And, uh, in that sense, do you not, like, I would just immediately think that you would look at the issues over a year as sort of your batch of issues. Do you not think of them as sort of a yearly batch and more? more than a year because we they do have such but it's, long it's
1: longer yeah i think the institutional memory is is a little bit longer yeah. than that i do not have a great memory when it comes to the regular human life like I'm the person that's losing his keys all the time and stuff like that um and I just uh forgetting like my kids friends parents names and stuff like that but I have a weird I've realized preternatural ability to like tell you exactly what issue and what year like a little story <laughs> ran in um which is probably just being too connected to my work so I think that's helpful the other thing honestly though is the balance of, uh, especially for a magazine like ours. And the reason a magazine like ours is great, as far as I'm concerned, or I should say why I like it, is because like, you know, we're a general interest publication bounded by the geography of Maine, But within the physical boundaries of our state, like, we can do whatever we want, Yeah. <laughs> you know? And we do. So you can have an issue of the magazine that has like, you know, like I say I like service stories, so I don't mean to denigrate them, but like a fluffy, you know, seeming like, uh lobster roll road trip, you know, six page feature, and then flip the page and the next page is like, you know, a five 000 word piece that is a year in the reporting about uh about uh, uh uh the veracity of a of a celebrity's human trafficking claims. I'm thinking of a very specific piece from a couple of years ago that was just like kind of a heavy one, you know. You can have um you know a piece on one page that's about um like opiate addiction in in Maine um that again is like heavily reported and and uh you know it's a, a an intense read and then yeah a few pages later um you know you can be like rounding up best burgers or something and it I think you have to balance those things carefully but the magazine wins when it's firing on all those
0: yeah things. I would have never even thought of that that's an interesting sort of problem to have in the sense that there's no one specific thing you guys need to be writing about other than the fact that it's happening in Maine, <laughs> you know? It would be, and, it would be boring if there were, I mean, I don't know
1: if people work for trade magazines and stuff and yeah. they all and they, you know, focus intensely on one subject. But, um, I look at a magazine like vanity fair, which I'm fond of. I'm fond of it as a magazine. It's like, not really my, the content isn't geared to me necessarily, but the content is broad. And that's, what's so neat about it is you pick up an issue of vanity fair and, you know it's like the most i mean it's a little highfalutin but it's basically like hollywood gossip you know and it's just uh that you can read a bunch of you know eight pages about you know some starlet or leading man and sort of like who's hot in hollywood this year and then you flip the page and it's like you know um michael lewis like embedded with obama you know, for a month during his, and it's like one of the most inc- incisive pieces of political reporting that you've read that year. And those things fit comfortably side by side because the Vanity Fair, you know, team knows how to extend the brand and sort of wrap around them and extend the voice. And uh, And I'm sure they could tell you the ineffable qualities that make a Vanity Fair story, but they're elastic enough to cover both of those things. I feel that way about Down East. And to answer your question in a long, long way, it's all about thinking ab- about how to, stretch the that elastic Downey's brand and make sure it's coming through in two pieces that otherwise seem like yeah like they might exist on different poles interesting interesting yeah it's so fun honestly
0: <laughs> <laughs> well that's awesome i mean you so you know you you've you've discovered this love of magazines and now you're in that world and hearing you talk about a, another magazine made me think of another question i want to ask you um what magazines do you subscribe to? <laughs> you know, what yeah. are what are your go to magazines? Like, what are you spending your time? Because I know I've gone through phases where I, I have a bunch of magazines and I have few magazines, but I, too, love magazines. But you kind of have to distill down which are the ones that you find the time to read. So what is it for uh, you? I'm so glad to hear you say that. Um, yeah, so I get a lot because I have a little budget at work to right. spend
1: on like, the ones that come to the office. Um, and so some I get because I like to sit and read them on the evening, you know on a Friday night while drinking and <laughs> yeah, like my
0: recreation instead Some of the I work. Get, instead of the work ones, like instead of the ones that you yeah. look at for work, what is your personal enjoyment
1: magazine? But like I say, it's like these They're things same. are
0: very overlap because <laughs> right. I enjoy
1: sitting down and reading the New Yorker as like an escape and like time out of mind. I also like enjoy picking up one called Fifty Two Eighty, which is Denver's magazine oh. because I enjoy it as a magazine. They oh, do such cool. a great job of putting it together. They also have great feature writing. Um, so right now, I think I subscribe to at home. The New Yorker, uh, GQ, which hits on both of those. It's a super fun magazine just in terms of its architecture and its voice and everything, but they also have great feature writing and you can tuck into it. I'm looking at my stack down below me right now. Um, I really enjoy Audubon, which is like the membership magazine of the National Audubon Society and I used to contribute there. uh, So I read that a fair amount. Outside is one that I've subscribed to since um, probably like the mid nineties or the late nineties. And I've also contributed to here and there, but I'll read them um, until the the day I die. Um, Texas Monthly is another one that kind of hits on both. I like to read Texas Monthly because I think they're a really good exemplar of what a regional magazine can do at its best. And so I steal ideas from them for work, but also exquisite feature writing. Um, and you know, the fact that I don't live there doesn't take away from my enjoyment. This weekend, I read a piece that was about uh, a profile of a Texan author and she's a known quantity. I think, uh, she writes like, western fiction and i've heard of her books but i couldn't tell you her name off the top of your head on my head rather um and yeah i'm not texan but like it was such a great uh piece of profile writing i'll leave it with those for now but oh yeah vanity fair absolutely i like reading wired i get that at work but i take it home um yeah nice honestly i could keep going that's that's (laughs) really
0: interesting that's really interesting yeah um so i'm gonna kind of wrap it up with these few questions here these are these are questions that I've sort of asked everybody that I've, these are like my wrap up questions. Um, Well, this last one, not so much. Um, But I think you have such an interesting perspective on all of this being what your profession is. Um, So just kind of talk about your relationship with Maine. You said why you came here and how long you've been here and all of that. And you obviously have learned a lot about Maine through your work. So, for you, not as the editor of Down East Magazine, but you personally, what does sort of Maine mean to you? What do you love about it? What do you, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you don't have to say what you don't like about it, but you know, yeah, like what, what what does what's what's Maine to you? What it, what it, how, how is it? What is what is the essence of Maine?
1: I think the thing that I most appreciate about the state and about living here, and I could rank four or five things, but um, is I nodded to this for a quick second earlier, but it's the um like amount of geographic and in a sense cultural in a sense not like diversity that manages to cram into a relatively small area mainers by the by, are fond of talking about how big their state is because their you know sort of regional frame of reference is all these tiny little New England states with mm-hmm. um, your regional frame of reference is even the Midwest where I grew up, to say nothing of like the Rocky states where I you know spent a lot of my younger adulthood like um you know, Maine's the 13th smallest state in the union. It's not that big, Yeah. <laughs> you know, like you can drive into the Eastern side of Montana, clean shaven and leave the <laughs> Western side with like a day's growth of beard. Like we don't come close to that here. And yet like I can leave my uh, house here in hope on the mid coast. I live just inland from Camden and I can drive really just an hour and a half, two hours maybe in arguably, you know, one, two, three, four, five, arguably five different directions. And end up in five places that feel really different. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, like, I can get in, like, the span of, like, an afternoon's drive to Lubeck. I can get up to P.I., Presque Isle, or, you know, Millinocket and, and, like, the Northwoods. Um, I can get out to, like, you know, kind of Rangeley and the Western-Northern sort of main overlap um, down into Portland or all the way down to the Southern coast. And like, you could tell somebody who you just airlifted into those five or six places that it's five or six different States. They would totally fucking believe you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. um, I, did, I mean, and not just from the way that the, the natural environment looks or the built environment, but also just from the, 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 people that you meet, the way they sound, um, to some extent their values. Although I maintain that, you know, despite the whole like two mains thing, which like I'm trying to say here, really could be like three, four, five, maybe, yeah. if you wanted to get right down to it. But that we do have a lot more in common than we have apart. Um, so I really appreciate that. I appreciate how much variety the state just manages to pack into a fairly small, um, a fairly really small area. Um, I appreciate the the outdoor and conservation ethic here quite a bit. Mm. Um, that means a lot to me, and it's a reason that I tease my wife sometimes that like you know, if she were from Connecticut or something like she was probably not going to get me out of Montana to come back to like live in Massachusetts. I don't, I don't really know a ton about Massachusetts. I know there are some beautiful parts of Massachusetts, but it ain't Maine. Um, And the the fact that people that it's sort of just built into the way of life here from, you know, like the hook and bullet crowd that's going up to camp to hunt and fish to the sort of like coastal, you know, uh, career fisherman crowd, to you know, your dude sipping a latte on Commercial Street. Like everybody seems to have a built-in understanding that part of what makes the place special is um, you know preserving open space and preserving access and uh, maintaining like a level of w- wildness is not quite the right word because we really don't have a ton that you could truthfully call wilderness here. Baxter State Park probably comes pretty close, but. Um, but uh, of of an area where the, the hand of man has just like touched a little more lightly, um, I I think that's a really a really big deal. And something I like about Down East is that like, well, it's not an ideologically driven magazine by any means. Like we do kind of call them as we see them, and we do wear our ideals a little bit on our sleeve. And the one that's probably the most pronounced and obvious in like sixty six years is that like we're very prettily openly in favor of preserving Maine's natural heritage. You know. Yeah. Um, so I think that's huge. You know, there are some things I don't like about me, and I don't, I'm i not uncomfortable talking about them. I've, most of them I, kind of strike me as more sort of charming and quirky. There's nothing that really, like, bugs me. Yeah. Um, but I'm an interloper here, you know. Uh, I've, I've only lived here for 10 years. I may not live here forever. I love raising my kids here. I have no desire to go anywhere anytime soon. But I miss Montana sometimes. I'm fond of the West. I'm fond of the Midwest. It's a big world out there. Like, yeah, I don't know, right. um, <laughs> but I think the way that we tend to talk about people from away um, versus people who belong here, although it can be kind of charming and it's, and it can be kind of like a, a funny ha ha slash endearing expression of our connection to the state. I do think it can take on like a sinister um, underside yeah. undertone. Uh, I'm not the first person to point that out, but like, you know, I had a great conversation about this and wrote a story about it with uh, Tim Sample, the comedian, who's like gotten a lot of yucks out of the over the years as a native American, uh, about uh, out of this gag about like, you know, the, what's the line? Like, Oh, my kids, were, I wasn't born in Maine, but my kids were born here. And so surely they're natives. And then the, the response is like, Oh, if my, just because my cat has a, if my cat has kittens in the oven, it doesn't make him biscuits. <laughs> um, or, you know, the gag about, like, the guy that was born, um, you know, like, in, uh, or his, his parents, you know, like, moved from New Hampshire to Maine when he was three days old or something, and at 70, like, his neighbors never let him forget it, that he's actually from away. Like, that stuff is funny, and yet, it is not, there is a, uh, a relationship or there is a continuity or or some sort of however loose tie between that kind of attitude that's a little bit haha and the attitude of people who like don't want immigrants coming to lewiston you know or um you know are prone to like gripe or discriminate against you know anybody coming in to uh, like young people or people of color uh, like coming into a community that has historically not had a lot of either one, um, so I'm wary of that. Yeah, um, and I'm 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 always kind of still processing it because, like I say, the flip side is like, man, I care enough about my relationship with this place to sort of like keep tabs on like who belongs to it and who doesn't. Um, but um, one thing that I sort of admired about the West. Yeah, and and Montana has 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 a level of all this too, obviously. But the, especially the farther west you go, um, there's this attitude of invention and reinvention that is just a lot more entrenched. And the idea of like who belongs here and who doesn't, and my family's been here for X generations. Boy, it's hard to really put a lot of stock in that stuff when like the oldest non Native American family only goes back a handful of generations. Like we you know yeah. it hasn't been colonized all that long, right? right. And there's this, this, this sense as you get farther out in that direction in the country of a place that's like still becoming, whereas I think the default sense in New England has a tendency to sometimes be like, this is the way things are. It's the way they've always been. It's the way they always will be. Um, that's my bad New England <laughs> accent. Uh, and so it's not that I dislike that necessarily, but it is, it is a little different for me. It's taken me some getting used to. Uh, over the course of ten years, and I do think if there's something that's exciting about Maine, though, it is that that old school attitude, that old school kind of stereotypical New England attitude about stasis and um, like maybe an over reverence for tradition and the idea that things can't and probably shouldn't change or that change is scary. I think that that's I think I see that getting beat back a little bit mm-hmm. in Maine um, by not just waves of newcomers, but also encouragingly, like o- old timers and people who have m- multiple generations, you know, multigenerational Mainers, who are just increasingly maybe willing to adapt as they see things like mills closing, for example. Yeah. Um, you know, I think maybe more so than a lot of other places east of the Mississippi, maybe. Um, there is increasingly like an openness to look at Maine and envision and focus on like, what could be built here rather than what's always been here. Yep. And, and, you know, th- the, the best scenario was like a, the f- finding the perfect healthy <laughs> balance of those two attitudes. But one thing I love about Maine to answer your question is I feel like there is a lot of work being done to try and find that, yeah. to try and balance that. Love that.
0: Love that. That's great. That's a great answer. Um the long, long end <laughs> <laughs> well it's funny because I being I'm only I've been in maine now for a year and a half so I'm relatively new where where were you before I grew up in Pennsylvania and I was lived okay. in, I've lived in Florida for a while now five or six years because I had a job down there um so and I've traveled quite a bit I've been to most of the states I've been to Europe I've been to South America so i've I've traveled extensively for work um so I've experienced a lot and then my sort of um, a perspective on Maine has been all of those things that you said. You get that sense from what you hear other people talk about or other people that I've known who know Maine better than I, what they've sort of elaborated to me. Um, but the one story that I often tell people when they sort of ask about Maine is a story that um, Jenny Van West, who's a musician that I had on my show, um, one of my first interviews, she said they moved to a rural area, and I don't remember the area off the top of my head, but she said you know, they moved into the house in, in summer, fall, and no one, none of the neighbors came and said anything. No one said hi. You know, they, it was, they were like, oh, okay, I guess people aren't friendly. Come first, come winter, as soon as it got, got, got cold, there was a cord of wood just put in their driveway by one of their neighbors <laughs> without any sort of anything, you know? And it's like, wow, that story really captures the essence, I think, of what some people in Maine are about because it's like, it's very much... I'm looking out for myself, and I'm doing whatever I can. But hey, you're here too. Like, let's—I I got your back too. You know, it's yeah, like, I'm, yeah.
1: I'm, I'm, I'm not. And you don't have to go back too far. You know, in uh, in in some communities in Mainto when like, yeah, just being able to rely on your neighbor for something like that was like a fairly crucial yeah. <laughs>
0: survival skill. You know, right? Yeah um so you probably have a few of these and the interesting thing about this question has been the people who've been like i don't really want to answer it uh, honestly hmm. but it is um what is like your hidden gems of a good spot to recommend for a day trip you know like oh i mean some- all i do is recommend my hidden gems <laughs> right <I know. laughs> it's like I know. we're just constantly <laughs> spilling it the- it's
1: funny we were on um and man this is a conversation for a whole nother podcast but like about the sort of Like ideology and ethics, honestly, of like putting out a a magazine like ours or kind of any media that, you know, makes a point to say we're not in the business of selling Maine. I, I, I always say like, we're not, we're not the chamber of commerce. We're not boosters. Like, we're not trying to convince you to come here. You're just, covering, like it, right? you you're just like covering it, right?
0: You're just covering it, you know, you're not selling it.
1: Yeah. I mean, my attitude is like, if you, if our magazine is in your hands, it's because we've already established that you like me. And so <laughs> <Right>. now <laughs> let's have the, the, the conversation that people who like, you know, a thing enough to talk intelligently about it can have. Right. In the same way that like people who really love music read Rolling Stone because I guess because it makes them like music better. Right. Yeah. Um. And so we try not to be too boostery, but we do sit down there and like, we, you know, we ran a story a few years ago with like, a cover that said hidden Maine," you know, and how much of the stuff that we were talking about was like legit hidden. Eh, I don't know. I mean, it's 2020. Like there's an internet, like if you want to find out about the hidden beach, you're going to find out about the hidden beach, you know, but uh, we just put something on. Uh, we just tried to crowdsource something for this, like best places to camp story we're putting together. And I asked the social team to just like toss out on Facebook, like, Hey, what are your favorite places to go camp and name? And inevitably when you do that, you get these answers from people who are just like, I'm not telling you, yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. like, okay, well you're following my magazine <laughs> on Facebook, so you can't be too antagonistic <laughs> about it, but, um, I'm not telling you or people will be like, okay, well, you know, it's uh, it's such and such a campground in Surrey, but don't tell anybody. And I'll always, you know, comment back on Facebook and just be like, Oh, we're we're only going to tell like, you know. Hundred thousand of our, don't <laughs> our worry. best friends, no big deal, and readers. Um, so, like that being said, like I don't make a big secret of like the places that right. I'm super fond of. But I, I mean, I love the fact that I live in the Camden Hills. And if people are coming to Maine for the first time and they want to know where to go and recreate, um, you know, people who are coming up and they're like, "Oh, I'm going to go to Acadia. Like, you know, is there, are there places I should go besides that?" Um, there's so many, obviously, yeah. but. Uh, Uh, I'll tell people who appreciate Acadia, like take some time and just bang around like greater Camden. Camden itself is fine. Um, but just like I live on the backside, all the smaller Hills back here that are for the most part, like owned and, and, um, uh, you know, stewarded by, um, land trusts and just this sort of like mess of little trails. I mean, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of miles of trail that get you up above treeline and like bald mountain and ragged mountain. And, um, Hatchet Mountain, I'm pointing. Um, all these little ones around me that, like, if you're just cruising up Route One, like, you would never know. If yeah, those things are there. So I think this is a, a tremendous resource. Um, it's not hidden exactly, and yet it doesn't see so much foot traffic. I think Baxter State Park is like one of the best reasons to live in Maine. Okay. Uh, it reminds me of the things I liked about public land in Montana, uh, which is the openness, the wilderness character, you know, the backcountry level. It's hard to get true backcountry here I and mean, even when you're up in the north woods you're riding on logging roads and you're you know possibly staying at you know uh sports sporting camps mm-hmm. and, and old logging camps and things and that's a, it's a level of wilderness for sure but baxter is like truly fucking unspoiled cool and that's pretty amazing and in the neighborhood there's all these great little land trust properties and uh and like nature conservancy things Like just south of baxter is the Debskening Lakes. You rarely hear anybody talk about that, but that's like an absolute gem. Um, beautiful campsites, just this chain of lakes with really nicely maintained portages. Um, so, yeah. God, awesome. There's a couple. No, that's you great. That's great. You, like you could run a whole magazine about stuff
0: like that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, and then the last question is the um, eat and drink. What is, you know, which is obviously a huge topic of especially in the yeah. portland area and well, not just portland there's there's great restaurants all increasingly all elsewhere but yeah, yeah for sure portland but um and gosh and in this new day and age it's sort of like where do you get a beat to get a bite to eat and drink you, you know, know how many of these places are going to survive all this and so what's your what's your go-to and if um maybe if you're in portland and then locally to where you're at too you know sort of just one yeah. or two places or a favorite brewery? Um, I mean, I or...
1: love our taproom culture. You know, I'm, I've like been an enthusiastic beer drinker for a long time. It was, it was amazing to show up here when I did in like in Maine's beer timeline in 2010. Coming from the West where the craft brewery thing was like a little bit more entrenched and got to Maine and it was like, ooh, we're a little behind. And then like jet fuel yeah. <laughs> over the course of the last decade. You know, there's so much good beer being made here. And moreover, like so many cool places to hang out in communities. Yeah. like that have evolved around that beer. I mean, so if, when I come to Portland these days, which is fairly often, like I'll definitely try and duck into Oxbow and then eat at, um, oh, you know, Duck Fats little stand there, the Free free Shack. Yeah, it's great. uh, That's, I mean, that's, no, I'm not telling anybody anything they don't already know about, (laughs) but that's a pretty great spot. Um, Is Figgy still doing its thing? uh over on like kind of on the west end there um it's a little takeout window that is on the back of I heard in the back of your prom coffee um i haven't gone for a little while and it, and you know we've all been indoors for the last four months yeah um but i didn't i didn't go this whole winter but that's always one of my favorite places to grab um to grab a bite they have like an amazing uh giant chicken sandwich i think and like korean wings oh, cool. that they just hand it to you out the window I hope those guys are still hanging in there. I'm not sure. Um, the mid coast though, honestly is great. Um, you know, I, we, I live in this town of like, you know, just over a thousand people and Camden and Rockland are bigger, but they're not metropolises by any means. And there's like, like five, like James Beard nominated restaurants within, you know, a dozen miles of me right now. Um, so one place that has been around for a super long time in Rockland that I think is like legitimately world-class is a Suzuki's. Um, Like I think would stack it up against any sushi place in any metropolitan area in the country um, run by the nicest lady and a really cool staff. Um, And it's just small. It's unassuming. The plates are beautiful and the amount of money that she funnels in to the docks in Rockland and just like the local, uh, fishing and aquaculture scene is pretty impressive um, back in Damascata where I lived for the first six or so years that I was in Maine um, shuck station is um, hopefully getting back at it uh, pretty soon as the the county starts to reopen and stuff and that's um, this fellow Brandon Parsons who is like a local Damariscata guy and grew up like a little bit immersed in, uh, oystering culture on the Damascotta river, which yeah, I'm
0: really, I'm into oysters yeah, I and them that's, for a little bit. When that's I lived big there. there, right? Oysters are big in that region. Cause I see oh, that, man. I see that name yeah. a lot when I'm eating delicious oysters around the state. Yeah.
1: And with like, good reason, there are so many good varieties of oysters that come out of there, but increasingly uh, elsewhere in Maine, and Shuck Station is a former gas station that cool. uh, he was going to use as like a place to hold, his, uh, like store oysters for his wholesale business. He was bringing oysters to and from Portland and running a little cart down there. And it almost sort of metastasized by accident into a restaurant. And it's so cool and unassuming and still feels like a gas station. And they have great beers. And they're really into like, without being didactic about it, like the whole menu is just like uh, like a, a textbook. It's like you're learning about oysters oh, when you cool. eat there. And the servers can all talk about it. So I try and sing that place's praises whenever I can. Nice. Nice. Yeah.
0: Um. All right. One uh, One more final question. I know I said final question, but I forgot that I normally like to ask people. I like to leave people with a little bit of like advice. You know, Um. some people are like, well, I'm not anybody to give anybody advice, but <laughs> if you were to give in, it can be Maine centric or it can be um creative centric, you know, but sort of mm. if you're thinking about visiting Maine, moving to Maine or, you know, thinking about becoming a writer, do you have any, just sort of parting words to be like, hey, do this? Well, I kind of do.
1: I guess where Maine is concerned, I mean, I've written this in various forms over the year. I have an editor's letter right now, so I get to kind of do a version of this like, right. every month. <laughs> um, but I mean, I, I have found, this gets back to your question about what you sort of like or dislike or just notice about Maine, that people in Maine have a tendency, people who live here have a tendency, and this is a journalization uh, here, regularly have a tendency to cordon off a little bit into their corner of the state. Um, and, and it's an understandable tendency, and this relates to my whole fondness for the, for the diversity. Um, but you know, like there are people who have lived in Maine their whole lives or have lived in Maine for a few decades and uh, and live in greater Portland or Southern Maine who have not been North of Bangor, Mm. but one or two times in their whole life, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, it's not that uncommon to meet someone like that uh, and, and i've as i've sort of learned um, and i 've talked to people in the county you know who who family has been there for generations who 've lived there the whole life and who 've like never set foot on one of Maine's southern beaches you know yeah and um you know, if you're not a real outdoors person, I guess it's sort of understandable that you wouldn't be making a beeline to go up to Baxter or Millinocket or even necessarily Rangeley or something, because that's the the primary appeal. But um, it boggles my mind that people can spend decades and decades here living in, you know, a place that's like three hours away, place A, three hours away from place B. Like, oh, I've always wanted to go to, you know, Eastport. Well, what's stopping you? (laughs) Like it's right over there. It's not that far of a trip. And people will talk, people who will think nothing about driving two hours or more in traffic to Boston will talk about going to Bangor, the exact same distance, you know, I'm thinking of greater Portland people here, as if it were going to the moon. Um, (laughs) And again, it's not everybody, but it is a surprising amount of people. And so my little piece of advice is just like, particularly when we get out of, if and when, well, when, whatever it might look like, but when, you know, we can feel confident about traveling again. And even if that's with common sense, uh, you know, precautions, bring your mask, stay six feet away, you know, make sure you're going into a community. If you're looking at like an Island trip or something that like wants you there. Um, once we can all feel comfortable traveling again, like, yeah, my advice is like go to places in this state that you don't know anything about that are not that far away. (laughs) And like, Where there are no barriers (laughs) between you and uh, you know Jackman or whatever place you find
0: yourself being like oh yeah I've always been curious about Jack we'll just go there yeah just. And this <laughs> and this summer is a better time than ever, right? Because I think so. Potentially there should be less tourists in the state, but who knows, you know. We still who have knows? to see. But how I that do goes. think like,
1: you know, outdoor recreation is going to be one Huge. of the well, yeah. you can't shut it down for one for one thing or not as easily certainly as a lot of other, you know, kind of classic summary things you might do, events certainly. Um and it's, you know, I think everything we're learning about outdoor transmission makes it, s- it seems to be that it's, you know, a lot safer to yep. spend your time doing that so yeah go take a camping trip this summer in some place you've never
0: been yeah love it i love it that's awesome well thank you brian kevin editor-in-chief oh, thank you, magazine this was ton of fun this may be my longest podcast ever and i genuinely feel like <laughs> i could just keep talking to you about this stuff because i find the whole thing interesting and i think you have such a great perspective on maine and um I, I love Maine since I've been here it's it's a great place to live it's really been a great place to explore with the work and the f- people I've been fortunate enough to meet and work with I've gotten to see more of the state than I normally would and um it's uh it's it's awesome it's awesome so I love that 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 last sentiment of you know go see something different and hey you know what that probably could be for everybody anywhere you know maybe get outside of your back door and go see something different because it can British. it can help with perspective a lot. Well, I really
1: appreciate these questions, and it's, yeah, it's a pleasure talking to you. This is this is great, and uh, enjoyed previous episodes, and I look forward to other ones.
0: Awesome! Thanks so much, man. Thank you. Thanks so much to Brian for coming on the show. I really enjoyed chatting with him, and I hope you enjoyed hearing about his main experience. Next, we have a new track from the band Halicom. We featured their music in a previous episode, and I am grateful they reached out to us so they could share this new track with all of you. Off their forthcoming EP, here is Must've Been. That was Halicom with Musta Been. They have a new EP that is available to pre-save on Spotify right now, and when you do so, you gain access to their new exclusive music video. So follow the links in the show notes to learn more. Now, as I said at the beginning of this episode, it has been just over two years since we moved to Maine, and 2020 has been a year I won't soon forget. While I used to plan my summers around the projects I might be working on, interfering with the live music I wanted to see, instead the live event industry shut down and some of my closest friends and colleagues lost their jobs. Instead, this summer was one of masks, hand sanitizer, and being forced to stay away from the ones we love. Nonetheless, we tried to make the best of it. In July, Christine and I traveled to Canandaigua, New York, and we were able to pull off a small wedding ceremony uh, with our parents, our siblings, and their families. It was a whirlwind of a day, but I'm so glad we were at least able to gather with our closest family members to celebrate um, something truly special. And speaking of truly special, our dog Benson has had a pretty good summer too. We discovered an awesome new spot for off-leash dog walks, Fuller Farm in Scarborough, And he is always happy when he's able to go for a swim in Casco Bay at the East End Beach in Portland. We went on a few camping trips with close friends this summer, visiting Bethel, Camden, Bar Harbor. I even managed to get my small sailboat out on the water a couple times. I also got to do some really fun projects with some amazing people that I've met in Maine. The guys over at Lone Spruce Creative, Mark Fleming, and Kevin Sennett uh, brought me on to do some shoots for the Maine Office of Tourism. And it was quite an adventure. When I went to school for sound engineering nearly 20 years ago, I never thought I would find myself standing in water up to my waist running sound equipment, but shooting with those guys this summer made it a reality. Uh, Long hours humping gear and recording sounds at Moosehead Lake, Rangely Lake, and Libby Camps in the main Northwoods with those guys was just so much fun, and I'm really excited to be working with them on those projects and more in the future. And finally, uh, this fall, I've found myself hunkered down in my home studio, working on another really fun project with another Mainer, the audio drama guru, Fred Greenhalge. This week, I'm wrapping up the preliminary sound design for his latest audio drama, and I'll be excited to share more details with all of you about that at the beginning of 2021. So if anyone isn't sick of hearing my voice yet, I was also interviewed on another Mainer's podcast, Cameron Autry over at the Southern Maine Report. Uh, He asked me to join him on his show, and I was happy to oblige. It was a really fun conversation. So if you want to have a listen, go check that out. I'll include a link in the show notes. All right, that's enough about me. Look forward to more episodes coming soon. I am meeting new creative people every day in Maine, and there is no shortage of interesting stories of theirs to share. So I'm looking forward to bringing you more of them in the future. So in the meantime, if you are listening to this this week or anytime in the near future, I hope everyone is having a happy and healthy Thanksgiving and beginning of this holiday season. This year has been unlike any in generations, and we are sending you all lots of our love from up here in Maine. So everyone stay safe, stay sane. We're going to get through this. I'm going to leave you with a soundscape I recorded at Harris Turkey Farm in West Newfield, Maine. And uh, I hope you enjoy. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. is produced by Audio Evolutions. Audio Evolutions is a small business run by me, Jason DeWald, and I would love to work with you on your next project. In the modern age of digital media, it is easier than ever for people to be creative, but poor audio quality can distract from all of your hard work and ruin your project. Let Audio Evolutions help evolve your sound to the next level. Offering services ranging from full-scale music production for your next album, podcast production to give you the professional sound you deserve, audio post-production for video, location sound recording for video shoots, and even voiceovers. Send an email to jason at audioevolutions.net and let me know how Audio Evolutions can help you evolve the way your world sounds.